Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 517, The Unavoidable Choice. This week, we're having a look at Jesus' use of rhetoric, specifically as he gives us three metaphorical choices between two roads, two trees, and two foundations. And you may be surprised to learn what he wasn't talking about. So now let's jump right into our final installment of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, welcome once again. Uh, As we carry on with our series on Matthew's Gospel, today is kind of an interesting day because we come to the end of what has been uh, a nine-week series within a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, of course, the greatest collection of, of Jesus' teaching we have anywhere in the Gospels. The Sermon on the Mount began with great tenderness, the Beatitudes, and now it is finishing with with some real toughness. Um, it is, it's clearly what we're going to cover today, which is the last half of chapter 7. It's, it's the most serious section of the sermon. Jesus uses three different metaphors to, to startle us, to awaken us, and really to, to present us with a choice. And, and, and we can't avoid this choice. It's got huge ramifications I'm reminded of Billy Graham years ago saying, uh, to not make a choice is to choose. But before we can go into it, as I said last week, I wanted to explain a little bit about rhetoric to you in the New Testament. Because in in this last half of chapter 7, it is absolutely filled with Jesus using rhetoric. Um he, you know, he uses rhetoric throughout the Gospels in the parables, um, the the parable of the unmerciful servant uh, being delivered to the torturers, uh, the goats being sent to everlasting punishment. Rhetoric was really an important and widespread feature of communication in the the Greek and then the Roman world. Um, it was so much a part of people's listening life that they understood the nuances. We, we've got rhetoric throughout the New Testament in, in Jesus' teaching, uh, in the epistles, especially Paul, and the uh, book of Revelation is filled with rhetoric. It's, it's intended to arouse the listener's emotions. Um, it moves them from their head to their heart, and then hopefully from their heart to their hands. And so it uses strong language because it's got, it's got big goals. Jesus knew what was coming for his followers. And he knew there would be growing intense pressure on them to turn back. From, from following him. Likewise, Paul was speaking, of course, to the early church, and, and he was writing to a church that was under constant uh, social pressure to turn back. Um, and so Jesus and Paul, they used rhetorical exhortation to call the church to faithfulness uh, in the face of these pressures to persevere. It's also a Rhetoric is a primary message of, of revelation, and, and if we don't get that, I think we get off track in the book of Revelation. So how does rhetoric work? Well, it's a big topic, but to, to compress it down, it, 
Rhetoric often uses, and Jesus especially, often uses back-to-back contrasts, uh, anger and calm, uh, fear and confidence, shame, favor. Um, He also uses a metaphor. We're going to see three metaphors today, uh, a gate and and fruit and a foundation. So he uses metaphor. Uh, Rhetoric uses irony, which is to say that that the, the writer means the opposite of what he's saying. You know, we irony can slip into sarcasm for us, but it could be, you know, if, I, if I'm if i playing tennis and I make a terrible shot, what am I likely to say? Not that was a terrible shot, but rather, oh, nice shot. Um, it, it uses hyperbole. Jesus uses hyperbole a lot, which is, which is an intentional exaggeration. The... The harsh threads in rhetorical teaching are not meant to be taken literally, and this is where we get in trouble. In the ancient world, rhetoric was part of everybody's basic education, going all the way back to what we would now call middle school. Uh, it was like math or science. As a result, people knew how to how to recognize and how to listen to rhetoric, how to understand the message presented, and, and this is largely lost today. We often get led into literalism when that's the last thing that the the speaker intended. Rhetoric is, without a doubt, the most difficult genre of scripture for us to understand, especially given the 2,000-year gap between the culture in which it was then used and now. Um, When I talk about hyperbole, I mean intentional exaggeration. And, And why? Because trying to change the listener's perspective. It, it's it's attention-getting. It's almost shocking, and it's definitely confrontational. When, when New Testament authors use threats of wrath on the church or on unbelievers, it should be read as rhetorical exhortation to, to faithfulness in, in the face of this social pressure to turn back. If we don't get this, we misjudge what the author is referring to. We can think, for example, in these passages we're about to look at, that he's giving us an end times description rather than a a moral exhortation. Think of the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and and how often it's taught as this is a description of, of hell and heaven, and that's not at all what the intention was. The same with the sheep and the goats. In both Jesus teaching and revelation, we we must be careful not to literalize imagery. They're metaphors. It's hyperbole. It's spoken often with irony. We need to get beyond the literal image to get to the author's true intent. Now, I know I've repeated myself, but I'm trying to break through here in what is a new way of, for many of us, of thinking or even of understanding the New Testament. So today's passage, Jesus uses rhetoric to push his listeners to recognizing the seriousness of their response and to recognize they can't get around this seriousness. They cannot avoid making a choice. So he's he's pressing through these three different metaphors, he's pressing us into a into a place. Uh, where there, there aren't other options. We've got to choose.
So it's built around these three pairs, uh, two roads, and actually it's two gates and two roads, uh, two trees and two foundations. So that's how we're going to look at this today. So Jesus is using rhetoric to, to stress this is really important. The, the ramifications are huge. Uh, the choice matters because it determines who enters the life of the kingdom. Notice I didn't say heaven. I said the life of the kingdom because the kingdom is broken in. Um, he won't allow us to make any comfortable or compromising uh, solutions to what he's saying. It's choose. Now, I'm going to move on from rhetoric, and I need to just make sure we're all on the same page when I talk about the kingdom of heaven. I've told you that in Matthew, it's literally the kingdom of the heavens. <coughs> Excuse me. And as I said to you at the beginning of this series, and will throughout, that the kingdom is central to Matthew's gospel. And, and when we say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens, once again, we're not talking about a defined place. It's not up there. It's not out there. It's not the same as going to heaven when you die. The kingdom of the heavens is a sphere of existence. It's an ultimate reality that transcends the limits of of space and breaks into time. It breaks into our world. As uh, George Eldon Ladd said, it, it's, the, it's the presence of the future. This is what the kingdom of heaven is about. And it, it stands in contrast, this transcendent ultimate reality, it stands in contrast to our our dominant earthly human experience. That's why the the New Testament writers continually call up the church, call up the listeners to to lift up our eyes. You know, that classic passage I I quoted a few weeks ago in in Hebrews 12.22, where where he's saying to the church, wait a minute, you've forgotten who you are. Don't you know you've been called to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn, myriads of angels, etc. The, the, again and again, the teachers of the New Testament are calling us to move from life in the flesh, which is, is not meaning carnal but natural life, to life in the spirit. We don't enter the kingdom at our death. Many evangelicals don't understand that. They, they weren't taught that the kingdom is not about going to heaven when you die. The message, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus brought is that it's already broken in to the present order of things. He's brought the kingdom with him. And it hasn't been fully consummated, but it's advancing and advancing and advancing. Matthew eleven twelve, 12. Um, the, the, he says, the time has come. The kingdom is here. He says, the kingdom is in your midst. So those who belong to the kingdom are by definition those whose lives are characterized by kingdom priorities. So those are the two things I wanted to establish before I carry on in this teaching. What is rhetoric and what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of the heavens? So now let's get to our passage. We'll start verse 13 and 14. We're in chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. 
It's interesting if you read among uh, commentaries and various scholars, there's a difference of opinion. What comes first? Is it is it the road and it narrows down to a gate, or is it a gate that then opens the way to the road? It doesn't really matter. Um, but if somebody pressed me, I, I would think it's probably the gate uh, at the beginning of the journey. The word for gate literally was wicket, which was like a, a small, narrow opening. It was so narrow, you kind of had to go through sideways. Uh, so you couldn't go through the gate while you were carrying a load. Uh, you had to strip yourself of essentials. Uh, that speaks to me of, of repentance, of giving up uh, my old ways, controlling habits, sins, preferences in order to enter into a new way. One of the church fathers, St. Valerian, who uh, who lived mainly in the early 400s, late 300s, early 400s, and was martyred for his faith. He said this, Therefore, if anyone is wise, let him rid himself at the outset or uh, of the encumbrances of the world. Let him remove by repentance whatever blemishes he has incurred through negligence. If worldly glory has put any burdens on his back, he should not think they are worth carrying with him. For such burdens are by nature heavy, and they grow heavier still through the difficulty of the journey. The road speaks to me of a journey. I mean, one of my favorite McCartney songs is The Long and Winding Road, and that's what it is. And it's about the lifelong process of sanctification. What does that mean? Paul said in Romans 8.29, it simply means that being conformed step by step into the image of Christ. It takes effort. When he says, enter the gate, that seems to speak to me of, of effort. It takes effort to turn aside. So he presents us with two gates and two roads. There's a wide gate. There's no limit to what we can take with us. Uh, the wide gate is easy to see. It catches the eye. It's attractive. It's popular. The narrow gate, you've got to seek it out in order to find it. It's easy to miss. The, the word narrow in the Greek literally means to press hard upon like a, a grape press. To, to, to enter it, you've got to leave everything behind. Sin, selfishness, maybe family or friends for some people. It's losing our life to find it. No wonder the narrow gate isn't popular, not considered attractive. But it's the only way to real life. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we find the gate? We find the gate by finding Jesus himself. In John 10, 7 and 8, he said this, I tell you for certain that I am the gate for the sheep. Everyone who came before me was a thief or a robber, and the sheep did not listen to any of them. I am the gate. All who come in through me will be saved. Through me, they will come and go and find pasture. Let's look at the other image within this of the two roads. There, there's no way to avoid making a choice. Classically, we were laughing earlier about that old Yogi Berra quote, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Um, Jesus is presenting two opposed orientations, and they lead to two very different destinations. 
He says here that the easy road is broad and it's roomy. Uh, it invites us to a, a road that is spacious. Uh, spacious makes me think of the modern freedom. I just want my space. There's no resistance on the easy road. In fact, in the in the message translation, it says the easygoing formulas for a successful life. I. I I kind of went ouch when I read that. The easygoing formulas for a successful life. I am sad to say that an awful lot of 21st century evangelicalism, the teaching is built around easygoing formulas for a successful life. Here's three steps to be successful at this or how to be that. It, it's marked by, by a permissiveness, and that's why it's easy. You don't have to leave anything behind to travel on this road. And then he says, but there's a hard road. It's narrow. And uh, it's got clearly marked boundaries. It's compressed. We're back to the image of the, of the wine press. But you know why it's narrow? It's narrow because the revelation that Jesus gives. You know, when when we, we get revelation, we read the scripture, Christ speaks to us, revelation always comes with accountability. We have, we are responsible for the revelation we receive. So this revelation uh, of those who are committed to following the Jesus way affects our attitudes, our motives, our goals, our relationships. But this is the way to true life. It requires overcoming challenges. Um, you know, the paradox, and always the gospel is filled with paradox, is this hard road leads to Jesus who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a metaphor that is more about journey than destination. And I think too often we look at all of these passages that we're going to be on today as more about destination, but they're about journey, about process. And this road reminds us that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. First uh, Peter says we are aliens. Caesarius, one of the early church fathers, said this, In the city of the world, the good Christian is always on pilgrimage. He is known to be a citizen of the city of paradise. In this we prove we are pilgrims if we desire our fatherland. Isn't that interesting? There's like a, a homesickness in us that just doesn't go away. In the midst of whatever we're doing, good, bad, or indifferent, deep down there's a longing because we know we are sojourners. We know we're not home yet. Let me carry on with this quote. The city of Christians, their blessedness, their true and eternal happiness is not this world. Our fatherland is paradise. Our city is that heavenly Jerusalem. Our fellow citizens are the angels. Our parents are the patriarchs and prophets, apostles and martyrs. Our king is Christ. It's a wonderful quote. I think a key to, to embracing and truly living the sermon is orienting our lives around this truth. We are citizens of heaven. It's more than a statement of faith. It's an orientation. Now, what he's presented us with are two ways. And, and just so you know, I wanted to take this briefly, but 
there, there's a whole two-way tradition throughout all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The most classic example is Psalm 1, and here's just a few verses. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path or way that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in this season." And their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. Do you see fruitfulness along this way? And then the contrast, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. So many commentators assume that this passage of the, the, the narrow and the broad, the hard and the easy way, are about our eternal destiny when we die. But it's so important to look closely at what Jesus actually says because it is so easy for us to superimpose our assumptions, our preconceived notions when we're reading the Scripture. Again, the focus is not on the destination, but on the journey, the way itself. There's a great tendency among evangelicals to reduce the way to faith in Jesus. And that, in fact, is, is often reduced to meaning that, that sometime we prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, and that's, that's the way. And the, and, and the destination is, uh, they equate that with hell. So the broad way, you're going to hell. And, and, and believe me, if you read through commentaries, uh, if you listen to sermons, that's, that's very much a majority view, but it's not what Jesus is saying. What is the good and bad way in this passage? That's the key, folks, learning to read carefully and prayerfully. Jesus is describing the nature of the way. And, and so what is the nature of this way that he's calling for. It is everything he said up until now in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the summation, folks. Jesus is talking about this life. He doesn't suddenly shift from this from this life to, to heaven or hell. He is still talking about this life. So he's telling us the the about the outcomes of our choices of our road, if you like, uh, from walking the good or the bad way. Yes, our choices uh, may have ultimate eternal consequences, but that's not what he's saying here. Jesus' agenda in the sermon is for the kingdom to come to earth. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, 610, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That's his agenda. For the kingdom to come. This requires us to live in a certain way in order to be in rhythm with his agenda in order to bring the kingdom. Now, Jesus was reflecting, as I said earlier in this series, on, on Moses. Uh, remember, he, he, he said, I've, I've come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Really, I've come to reinterpret the law. Jesus on the mountain is is like Moses on the mountain. And and if we look at Moses on the mountain in Deuteronomy 30, 
19, he says this, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Now choose life so that you you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Moses is saying, you've got to choose this day. That's exactly what Jesus is doing on this mountain. Let's go to the next passage, two trees, 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruit. So he starts this passage by talking about false prophets. There's always been false prophets. False prophets throughout the Old Testament. False prophets in the New Testament. It's very likely that that false prophets was an issue for, for Matthew when he wrote this gospel because, as I said before, I think he wrote it uh, for and from the... Uh, Antioch Church. So it's very likely that was an issue there. But there's always false prophets, and they always seem good. He said they're wolves in sheep's clothing. But they lead us to this easy, broad road that he just warned us about. There's never been a shortage of those who will say, peace, peace. God wants to bless you. He wants to give you more and more and more. They present a gospel that is about my comfort, my blessing, my prosperity, what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Twice Jesus says that we can tell false prophets by their fruit. So how do we do this? One, there's a doctrinal test. Do they encourage faith in Christ alone? Christ is the gate, right? We saw that in John 10. Do they, is Christ the focus of their preaching? Folks, that is so important. That is so important. Christ-centered preaching. I think our churches need to have Christ-centered worship. I was talking to somebody yesterday about creating sacred space as we gather. So, so this is a test for true or false prophets. Do they encourage Faith in Christ alone, is he the focus of their preaching? Secondly, there's an ethical test. Do they teach and value Jesus' social commands? Do, Do they ignore the issues of obedience that have been laid out and we've spent the last eight or nine weeks talking about? True teaching is about right doctrine and ethics. Faith and love, grace, and costly discipleship. The second thing I want to focus on in this passage is fruit. Fruit's a metaphor for a a lifestyle and and for behavior that demonstrates true repentance, faithfulness to what God says. Um, If you look bring forth the fruits of repentance is what John the Baptist said when people said, what must we do? 
Jesus constantly uses the image of fruit and fruitfulness throughout all four Gospels. I started to write this down, and I realized the list was getting incredibly long. Let me just give you a few examples. But you can look up in your Bible, fruit or fruitfulness, and you'll see, for example, Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. Uh, Luke 6, 44, each tree is known by its own fruit. John 15, that whole section is about fruitfulness. I am the vine, you are the branches, those who abide in me and I in them. What happens out of that abiding? They bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Disciples bear fruit, folks. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Notice it says, fruit that will last. Fruit that will show all around our world that the gardener is at work in our lives. Fruit that will feed others on their journey. That's something that that jumped out at me this week as I was studying. Fruit that is for the sake of others. And he says in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Did you know this is the exact word-for-word repetition of what John the Baptist said in uh, chapter 3, verse 10? John's message was about repentance. We know that. We know in the book of Acts, a baptism of repentance, which means metanoia, which means turning around. I was talking with someone yesterday in Australia, and this whole thing of repentance is not on our knees at the altar crying. It may include that, but it means to change our way of thinking, and when our thinking changes, our direction changes. Jesus uses rhetoric just like John the Baptist did. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. What's he doing? Again, he's trying to wake us up to see how high the stakes are. Now let's look at verses 21 to 23, the the inner life versus the outer religious life. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. This might be the most provocative, sometimes scary verse in all of my Bible. (laughs) Lord, Lord, something interesting. This is the first time that Matthew uses the word Kyrie, uh, which which is a, a term of worship for God. It's the first time he uses that as an address to Jesus. But from now on, it will be the most common use of address throughout the rest of his gospel. Matthew, in doing this, is expressing a very high, what's called a Christology. Not only is Jesus Lord, Kyrie, but it's it's Jesus himself who decides who will enter into the kingdom of the heavens, kingdom life. 
But I want us to go back to these verses just like we did earlier on the, on the, the two roads, two gates. Please, I want you to read carefully. Who is Jesus addressing? He's not addressing the sinners. He's addressing the religious leaders. In our context, the religious ministers, priests, and pastors. He's addressing their claims that their works get them in. Always, Jesus is looking at the authentic heart. We're back to his warning to the religious people that where he said, and we talked about this a week or two ago, he says, first, clean out the inside of the cup. Don't worry about the outside. These religious leaders think that their religious deeds give them favor with Jesus. He wants them, uh, he warns them that, that their, their deeds do not give them favor because he sees beyond their deeds to the heart. It is always the heart that matters to Jesus, not our religious acts. And he says, I never knew you. So let me come at this again. But Lord, Jesus, I've fed the hungry during this COVID crisis. We've got businesses started for those living in, in slums. We've planted churches and nations all over the place. We've led people on journeys of compassion. And he says, but I never knew you. But Lord, I was doing all of those great things, and, and so I was too busy to spend time alone with you in prayer. There was too much of your work to be done. Believe me, that... That may or may not sound ludicrous to you, but it's what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's a moral statement, an ethical statement about, yeah, but what's your heart like? But it's also about relationship. The end of the day, what he calls us to is relationship. We, John 1.12 says we get to be called sons and daughters. So these things are good works. There's nothing wrong with them. And we don't need to give them up, but they're not a substitute for relationship with Jesus. But Lord, I've had too many church meetings. I'm on too many committees or whatever it may be. They are not a substitute for relationship with Jesus. And that's why he uses strong words here. And he says, depart from me, you evildoers. Wow. Now, I think here he is talking about folks that that put up a good front, whether they're Christian leaders or just part of the church, they put up a good front. But we talked about hypocrisy a couple of times through the sermon. He hates hypocrisy. It, it means literally play-acting, pretending to be one thing when he knows our true self. By the way, as a leader, I believe firmly that there's a, there's a stricter standard and judgment for those who lead God's kids to church. Um, that's why Jesus said elsewhere, he said, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown in to the water than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. The stakes are high. When we say yes to the Lord, when he calls us into ministry, we need to understand it's a high calling with a high requirement. He said this in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There's that word again. For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, the externals, 
and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. And in 2131, he says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are coming into the kingdom ahead of you. I think that's a sign of, of a health, healthy church, a healthy gathering, where, where we live with, with the humility and the, uh, that we talked about in the Beatitudes, and we live with an inclusiveness and a welcome that, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people on the fringes, the people beyond acceptable social norms, they are so comfortable with us. They are drawn in. You know, where, where we're so sure about our doctrinal purity, where we're so sure that we're doing a good job in the church, we're going to see, just like those who say, but Lord, Lord, we did the stuff. We're going to see at the, at the climax of the sermon, which we'll get to in a few minutes, that the, the house of their claims collapses. He says, depart from me, you, you evildoers. Just like everything up until now, this is a dire warning. It's not to be shrugged off. I think Jesus is warning about the fires of judgment, not eternal fires of hell, but but purging. And I'll get to that in a minute too. So now we come to this last pair, last metaphor, verses 24 to 27, two foundations. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And grace, great was its fall. <sighs> he keeps pressing us to a point of decision. He says, the one who builds on the rock is wise. The word wise is a term used for those who are approved by God. And he tells them the storms will come. Whether you, whether you put his words into practice or not, you're going to have a storm. And he said this elsewhere. For example, John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Do you see or hear that? In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. A favorite verse of mine for yours has been Psalm 77, 19, which says, Your path is right in the midst of the turbulent waters. The gospel is good news for now and for eternity, but it is not escapism. Philippians 3, 10, that I might know him and the fellowship of his suffering. So some see these two houses one on the rock, one on the sand, which is rather poignant this, this season we're in with, with the catastrophe that happened a, a week or two ago in Florida, where a, a, the apartment built on the sand ultimately came down. 
But some see the two houses as a metaphor for our final destiny. It's about heaven or hell. Um, but for me, this foundation pair, Jesus' message is consistent with the other pairs. And it's got to be taken with the, the greatest possible seriousness. But I, I think Jesus is warning about the fires of judgment, not um, eternal damnation. It's purging, not damnation. We will stand before God and give an account. And uh, Paul uses this very same image uh, of a foundation in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this, For uh, no one can lay any foundation other than the one uh, we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. I am not saying that there is a final judgment. I'm saying that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The central point is this. The sermon finishes with a a summons, a a challenge to not simply accept Jesus, a phrase that I've never liked, Uh, not to accept Jesus or simply even to believe in him. But he's clearly telling us to do what he says. I figured out a long time ago in my own life and in my years pastoring, it is a lot easier to believe in who Jesus is than believe in what he says. And I only truly believe uh, in what I put into practice. If I don't put it into practice, I don't truly believe it. You know, that's always struck me. The only difference between the the house on the sand and the house on the rock, the sand, it falls, it's destroyed, the the rock house stays. The difference isn't they heard the same message. They both went to the same sermons. They got the same uh, MP3 series. And they both said, this is great teaching. I'm very stirred. And one said, this is causing me to change my direction, metanoia. And the other says, man, I love this stuff. This is a great series. This is a great book, whatever, and put it on the shelf and wait for the next one. That's what he's talking about. You know, in in all of today's passage, the, the, the word for to do or to practice appears 10 times. Matthew is telling us that that we need to do what he says, and he says that to do is righteousness. Remember chapter 633, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's a call to a life of faithful obedience to all that Jesus says. This is the life that he says is unshakable. To say we believe, to pray 
the prayer even to do acceptable Christian things, but not to put his words into practice, where they touch the deep parts of our life, where they call us again and again and again to choose between trying to save our ego self-life or lose our life for his sake, to, to do those things and not to put his words into practice is to build our lives on the sand of self-delusion. St. Augustine said this, Do not deceive yourselves just because you come eagerly to hear the word. Come every week. Never want to miss. Great sermon this week. Listen, it's good to have good sermons. It's a, it's a gift. It's a gift. I work in so much of the world where pastors don't have anything more than a Bible. They've never had any any reference material or anything. So I'm not demeaning it. It is a gift. Obviously, I spend a good deal of my time teaching. But here's what St. Augustine is saying. Do not deceive yourselves just because you come eagerly to hear the word. If you fail to do what you hear, just think, if it is lovely to hear, how much more so to do? If you do not hear at all, if you neglect the matter of hearing, then you are building nothing. If you hear and do not do, then you are building a ruin. Strong words. But James said this, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. James 1.22 Both in this life and in the time of judgment, our lives will stand or fall based on were we obedient to do what he said. Remember the, the parable of the sower? And there's many things to be drawn from that. But, but remember this, that the, the, the first type, hard ground, as St. Augustine just said, you're not building anything at all. But, but the second type, the stony ground, it, it, the, you know, the plants came up, but when there was hardship, um, it fell away. Or, or the thorns and thistles, that's like the eventual distraction, discouragement, just running out of gas and falling away. In either case, there's no kingdom fruit. I want you to think again about, about 1 Corinthians 3. Imagine that scene that you're standing before all of the heavenly host, and there is your life in front of you. What you built with precious stones and silver and gold and wood and hay and stubble, it's all there. And, and the purging fire comes. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us. And, and it comes and it's all burnt up. Imagine the sense of loss. Imagine how that would feel forever. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the importance of setting, that like Moses, he went up the mountain 
uh, the, the differences for Moses, everybody else had to stay down there, whereas they followed Jesus up. But he went up the mountain. Jesus, is, we see him as the authoritative teacher. You've heard it said, but I say there was the promise uh, from Moses that God was going to send another one like him. The crowds were amazed because Jesus spoke on his own authority. He wasn't quoting others. And any interesting, because remember, as I've told you before, there were no chapter breaks until around 400 when uh, uh, St. Jerome put in the chapters and verses. But So it just flowed, and the crowds followed him down the mountain. So what's interesting here is Matthew has structured the sermon with almost identical bookends. In in Matthew 4, just before the Sermon on the Mount, it says Jesus healed all kinds of sickness among the people and great multitudes followed him. Now at the other end of the sermon, great multitudes followed him down the hill and immediately, once again, he healed the sick. He actually starts with the leper. Healing was a demonstration of the kingdom invading the present. It was the future coming into the present. And I believe that following Jesus should include our willingness to enter into this aspect as well of healing. That's kind of an aside, but I didn't want to lose that. We, we need to follow him in every way. So let me just very briefly conclude. The Sermon on the Mount, as I've said to you many times, is the core of Jesus' teaching. It begins in gentleness and affirmation and tenderness, and it finishes with great challenge. But it has incredible transformative power. If we will let it, it will change us. It'll change me It'll change you, and it'll just keep changing us. If we'll let it, it will change our churches. If we will let it, it will change our cities and our nations. You know, Martin Luther King, he came to the same conclusion that Mahatma Gandhi came to, that that this this was practical, this was life as God intended it to be. And he followed it as exactly as he knew how, And the whole civil rights movement came and and great change began that still goes on 50 years, 60 years later. There's incredible power in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's up to us if we will let it confront us, challenge us, and change us. I encourage you. We just spent, I think, eight or nine weeks, and I felt like I was racing. I encourage you to prayerfully, prayerfully read through, pray through bit by bit, and ask Holy Spirit to shine his light. God bless you. Please stay with us. Uh, Oh, by the way, next week we have a wonderful, uh, we've got Father Kenneth Tanner, who's a terrific theologian and uh, Anglican minister, and he's going to come, and and, uh, Tim and I are going to interview him to talk a little bit, get his perspective on some of the issues we've raised in the sermon. So you'll want to come next week. And uh, for that matter, if you want to stick around in the next few seconds, Tim and I are going to discuss some of what I covered today. God bless you. Mm
Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, that was a lot of Sermon on the Mount. That's probably, is that the most intense you've studied the Sermon on the Mount in your yes, lifetime? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I, I bet you won't approach it the same way again in the future next time you come will. across it. Never yeah. will. Um, I have some questions for us and uh, I'm trying not to be grumpy because several of my questions I had to delete, hit backspace on because you answered them later in your teaching, which means it was good teaching because you answered the thing that I was like, yeah, but what about, and then you hit it. So, <laughs> um, Hey, just before we get into my questions, you know, you've, you've finished off talking about being doers of the word. Yeah. And I thought this might be a good opportunity to talk a little bit about our Isaiah 58 program, which is our feeding program that yeah. we've been engaged in for years and years. That was, that's been with impact nations long before I came around. Uh, I was reading Isaiah 58 just this morning and the crux of the the first half of that chapter really is about like, hey, I don't, I'm not interested in your ritualistic worship. I'm interested in you being doers of the word, really. So I, I thought maybe you could just tell people a little bit about the history of the Isaiah 58 yeah. feeding fund. That'd be great. Yeah, fits exactly with what I was finished with there, being doers. Um, it was a 2010. Mm-hmm. I was going to some different countries in Africa, scouting, and all kinds of things we do now came out of that trip, but I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know anybody. I just went because I felt like the Lord said, do it. And I took uh, I took two friends with me. We were driving. Uh, we'd gone through the uh, border crossing from Zambia to Zimbabwe. In those days, Zimbabwe was rather dangerous and unstable, but we had done a big water project there mm -hmm. with my friend Langdon Gatsy um, because there'd been a terrible cholera epidemic. So I wanted to go see him and see how the project was going. And, and I didn't realize how long of a drive it would be to get to Harare. And while I was driving, it's like I got a download um, about Isaiah 58. Hmm. And what came out of it was I, I encouraged people to fast one meal a week. Mm -hmm. And um, whatever they would have spent at their favorite hamburger joint or wherever, um, give that money to what we would then, we then created the Isaiah 58 fund mm -hmm. so that my... $10 lunch in North America uh, could turn into up to 50 meals. And in fact, that's turned out to be true. And as the years have gone by, sometimes it's even more than that. Yeah. And so it was about identification with the hungry and the yeah. poor. And you know, God's heart is so much with the poor. And when we minister to the poor, we're ministering to Jesus, right? Matthew 25. Yeah. So that's where it started. And, and I remember that summer, I, um, I think it was that summer. It might have been the following summer. So following summer, uh, I put a thing on Facebook. I said, it's my birthday. <laughs> and this is what I want. Yeah. 
And would you give to Isaiah 58? And to my amazement, thousands of dollars came in. Yeah. And we weren't used to seeing thousands of dollars. <laughs> but it is about identification, and it is about us at a grassroots level, all of us, keeping connected with Isaiah 58. And as you remind people, um, when, when many of our programs every dime we absorb all the, the right. wiring and the transfer and all the stuff every dime turns into food yeah. and as we've also been able to tell people we have many times when somebody gives isaiah 58 money um online click on a monday and by wednesday that is food in somebody's hand yeah. keeping them alive so it's always been a, a real passion of mine. And so my encouragement to anybody who's listening is here's one way, there's a million ways, but here's one way to do the gospel. Yeah, And, uh, and it's a good way because we identify yeah. with the poor. Yeah. So here's a challenge to our listeners. Uh, why not try that? Why not try fasting? For one meal a week, figure out what that what those dollars are that you're saving, and then sign up for just a recurring monthly gift uh, at impactnations.com, where those funds are just every week coming coming in. And I assure you, every week they're coming in and going right back out again because uh, we're you know throughout the month we're sending funds to our partners all over the world to feed the poor, uh, and it helps focus us because that day when that we've day skipped when lunch, yeah, that's right. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, yeah. Uh, I need to pray for the poor. Uh, ooh, and I here we are right back the to the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread, there as you he go. taught about a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I think, truth be told, I must confess, I, I think that right now on our website, our feeding page has been rebranded a little bit over the last year. Uh, it'll go back to the Isaiah 58 fund, but right now, just because of the COVID crisis, we, it's called the COVID uh, feeding page or whatever. But you can sign up for recurring giving there. Uh, it, they're one and the same. Uh, bottom line, it's food for the poor. Yeah. Uh, so impactnations.com slash feeding uh, and click on the monthly gift right there and uh, and then, yeah. Great. Begin to engage in that. That'd be very cool. Um, all right. Uh, you mentioned every dime a moment ago, which brought me right back to the the new church father you listed today, uh, Yogi Berra. Uh, when you come before <laughs> on the road, take it was one quote that we talked about. Another great one that you were just reminding me of is uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. <laughs> so there, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and nobody goes to the ballpark anymore. It's too, too crowded. crowded. <laughs> Oh, Yogi Berra, none like him. Um, We're really setting the tone for this part of the teaching. Very serious stuff. Uh, Let's talk about rhetoric for a second. Yeah. We have a hard time sometimes recognizing it. in in scripture, you know, looking at literary context and things like that, and specifically looking at Jesus' words, so often he is speaking metaphorically or hyperbolically yeah. to make a point. Sometimes, most of the time, we kind of miss the nuance of that yeah why do we do that why why like jesus we we talk about the uh the hypostatic union of jesus was both fully man and fully god but then we forget like if he was fully man and he was talking to an audience full of you know humans who talk in metaphor and figures of speech and things like that why do we suddenly almost rob jesus of the right to speak like one of us that's a great question. 
I wonder what the answer is. Um, <laughs> but I, it does take us back to some of the more uh, fundamentalist roots mm -hmm. and the whole stress on inerrancy of scripture. I was asked that just yesterday. Yeah. What's my position on inerrancy? That, that um, we like black and white. Mm -hmm. We do not like nuanced situations. I've talked about that uh, several weeks ago. And, and so we want uh dualistic right or wrong um answers yeah and rhetoric of course uh, doesn't do that on purpose yeah so i think that's part of it and the other part is simply uh although we use things like irony and hyperbole exaggeration uh but in in terms of speech and speaking and and essays it's not so prevalent anymore. Yeah. But it was not just prevalent, it was the way public speakers communicated. Indeed, yeah. They were I, trained. Yeah, I've heard that in one sense, the public speakers of Jesus' day and of Paul's day were kind of like the, the NFL stars or NBA stars of today. Like, you, you know, I mean, if you could if you could have their poster up on your wall, you know, that's, uh, I follow Apollo, no, I'm a Paul guy sort of a thing. Like, this was yeah. very much uh, part of uh, pop culture, if you will, yeah. for uh, first century Palestine. That's true. Yeah. Um, all right. I, now I got to find my notes. They just went away from me. Come back, notes. Bear with me one sec. I had other questions. Oh, Matthew, you you did a really interesting thing thing today, talking about Matthew using this phrase, the narrow gate, and then you brought us over to John, where Jesus is identifying himself as the gate, and you kind of connected those two, and it just got me thinking. I don't even know if there's a question here, so bear with me. But is it? possible you know as you t started talking about the sermon on the mount i think you were saying like, there's a good chance that this was not like one single uh like this is o almost a collection of jesus teachings yes. and things like that is it possible that as this was kind of one of jesus teachings about the narrow gate and things like that but matthew is very specifically focusing on something slightly different from john and yet jesus was very likely referring to himself uh during during teaching on a regular basis as the narrow gate. I'm guess cuz I'm guessing he didn't deliver these sermons just once. Uh for starters, I don't think Matthew or John were carrying around a recording device to get these things word for word, but I think sometimes in our modern context we seem to think that it's like, you know, they're sitting there dictating things as quick as they can at the back of the crowd. But really these are their um their recollections of Jesus delivering these sermons yes. again and again. And so we need to think carefully about what, like, why did Matthew include this? And why did John include that? And, and those yeah. things, there's no question there. I'm there's asking, no but. question, but, but there's a good observation <laughs> yeah. and, and we have to understand everything is in there for a reason. I've said mm -hmm. that repeatedly. I yeah. said it years ago when I did a John series and, um, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Um, you know, even in in my very much more limited world, but as I've gone and preached, and who knows how many times in various countries, um, and I'm not, I don't have notes, I just start to talk, but similar examples, similar concepts come out of me, whether I'm in Nicaragua or India. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that would have been something that would have just been part of uh uh, they would have picked that up as almost part of their own lexicon yeah. of his followers. Mm, yeah. Uh, out of curiosity, you touched on something a minute ago that I, I kind of want to just 
for the sake of our listeners, come back to you. You said a couple of days ago you were asked about your position on the inerrancy of Scripture. Why don't we finish today with if you could summarize the answer you gave? <laughs> he's rolling his eyes if you're listening, but because uh, I mean we hear it regularly. It is very much a part of at least the Western Church. There, I very regularly hear, hey, you know, the Scripture is inerrant, and then they'll they'll quote the you know it's God breathed. Uh, and things like that. Absolutely. God breathed, inspired. It's all good for teaching. Yes. And it's not inerrant. Okay. Uh, you have to live in denial um, to uh, not see contradictions, mm-hmm. especially in the Old Testament. Um, you, uh, I think we're straining at gnats and swallowing camels on the inerrancy thing. Ooh. <laughs> because uh, because the, the, what matters is not was there one blind man or two, it's that Jesus responded to someone who cried out, have mercy on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's off the top of my head, but the Old Testament's filled with it. It is absolutely God-breathed, God-inspired, God uses it, but he also works through human vessels. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it may be a... a one day I should do a talk on it because yeah. it's awfully hard to cover it in two minutes. Yeah, it is. And I, I think I, I want to be very clear. I incredibly value scripture. Sure. And so I, I guess my next follow up question was going to be is there a gracious, you know, a short gracious response when you don't have an hour to get into a good old debate with somebody over a coffee or whatever? But when you, is there a gracious way to say, you know, I've, I've been thinking about that? Like, I I think I've got. Let me hear. It. <laughs> no, I'm asking. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I don't know because we need to be charitable in these things yeah. too, right? There's no I'm point not, in just kind of proverbially in a fight. punching a guy in the and, face. And about you it. know, uh, Facebook comments prove that uh, our opinion's <laughs> not going to change somebody else's Indeed. opinion. Yeah. Um, and I do believe that we we speak with gentleness, mm-hmm. and as much as it's up to us, be at peace with all men. So I. I was asked that, as I said the other day, and I said, for me, no, but I believe it's completely true. All of it Hmm. is true. Yeah. Um, There's a difference between truth and facts. You know, you know that a lifetime ago I taught grade 11 and 12 literature, poetry, teaching them the difference between facts or the much deeper, more important thing, which is truth. Yeah. And that when... So when we talk about inerrancy, those who are using the word inerrancy would be referring to facts. You know, hey, there's no factual contradictions or errors in there. And your reading of the scripture, you're saying, I see factual contradictions, which means there's factual errors. One of these two writers was wrong. But that doesn't negate the truth that is there that we must seek out. And that's our responsibility to seek that out. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, well, with that, I think we'll we'll wrap up. I'm really looking forward to next week. Uh, you want to just tease one more time what's what's coming in our next episode oh, with, with our with guests? Kenneth? Yeah, Kenneth Tanner. Um, we actually connected with uh, with him through our beloved brother Brad Jerzak. Very good, and, thank you, Brad. Uh, and he's <laughs> friends. Remember, we had Cherith. Yeah, she about was great. Eight weeks ago, she was yeah. fantastic. So they they all are part of a um, of an open table conference and teaching mm-hmm. uh, group. Um, he is, uh, he's quite brilliant guy, uh, knows an awful lot about, uh, church history, mm-hmm. patristics is, uh, the priest at an Anglican church, 
Um, so he's able to embrace, to use St. Augustine's term, ever ancient, ever new, um, you know, and the kingdom of God's like a man who pulls out treasures, both old and new. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. He's a lovely man, and uh, he will be speaking from a, from a great depth yeah. of knowledge. And we're going to talk through just a number of things that have been covered in the last several weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good way to kind of finish finish this series within a series. Yeah, it's kind of been a little mini series on uh, the sermon inside of our series on Matthew. Yep. So join us, please. Next week we are here every Thursday at three p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, uh, and we're on YouTube Live. We're on Facebook Live. We would love to have you, especially next week, because we'd love to have your questions uh, as we're going. So that if you've got follow up questions or whatever, that uh, if you've got questions, by the way, that you've been saving up uh, over the last several weeks as you've been listening to this teaching, uh, please send them in to us ahead of time if you'd really like to see them get included in next week's discussion. Yeah, because uh, it's the the whole hour and a quarter is going to just be discussion. Exactly. So, yes, please. I just put an amen on what Tim said. This is the time for you to write in your questions. So, uh, send them to podcast at impactnations.com. You can write them in the comments uh, on either Facebook or YouTube as well. We'll find them there as well. Uh, Please join us. We're looking forward to it. Uh, Be sure to hit subscribe on YouTube. If you're a YouTube viewer, hit subscribe, hit that little bell so you get the notification. Uh, If you are an audio listener, be sure to not only subscribe, but again, share with others. Tell other people uh, why you're enjoying listening to this teaching. uh, And uh, that really helps us. And ultimately, the more people that join this family, the more we can get done in the kingdom. And and don't forget the Isaiah 58 fast. Indeed. You will be rescuing lives. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great week. God bless you. Bye-bye.